This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. Dum Dum by Red Velvet. They're a K-pop band. I've got all of their information in the show notes. Please support all of the music that I've listed in the show notes. You don't have to buy it, but at least check out the artists. Maybe you might want to hear something different from some of those artists. They allow me to put this music on this podcast, so therefore I give them a plug and ask you to support them by checking out their websites. Again, all listed in the show notes. Dum Dum by Red Velvet, opening us up. And pretty obviously why Viserys does a pretty dumb, dumb thing. Ned kind of looks like a dumb, dumb by the fact that it takes his girls to make him realize what's going on with the death of John Aaron. And I always look like a dumb, dumb talking about this stuff that happened, what, seven years ago? But in the meantime, what else have we got to do while we're waiting for Game of Thrones to return in 2019? My name is Matt. This is Game of Thrones Matt's audio blog. Kind of a dumb, dumb name for a podcast, but all of the good ones are taken. This is all I got left. Anyway, thanks for joining me. We're going to be talking about a golden crown, which was the sixth episode of season one of Game of Thrones. That would be the golden crown that ended up on Viserys head. It was written by Jane Espenson and David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and they provided the story. And it was directed by Daniel Minahan. And remember, if you have feedback about this episode or any of the season one episodes of Game of Thrones, you can submit an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at Matt's, M-A-T-T-S, G-O-T blog on Twitter. Again, M-A-T-T-S, G-O-T blog on Twitter. You can follow me if you like. Pretty much I will interact with you if you submit anything to me that way. I'll at least say thank you. I'll probably follow you if you submit something, if you want an additional follower that won't harass you too much, unless you harass me, and then I probably still won't harass you because your harassment will probably be valid. Anyway, those are two ways to contact me, and if you do so by June 2nd, midnight, June 2nd, wherever you are in the world, be it Moscow, be it Beijing, be it LA, be it New York be it Chicago, be it, I don't know, Oklahoma, be it Perth, Australia, or somewhere else in Australia, Brisbane, is that in Australia? I know Sydney is, but June 2nd is your deadline, midnight, wherever you are in the world, and it will be included in this, I hope to be massive, feedback podcast, where I get all kinds of feedback from all of y'all, because that is the goal of this is for me not just to tell you what I think, but for me to hear from you what you think. But the only way we can do that is to build a pretty strong community. Numbers say that not a whole lot of a percentage of people who listen to a podcast actually submit feedback for a podcast. So that means I got to have a lot of people listening. And the only way that I can have a lot of people listening is if a lot of people know that I even exist. And the only way that people know that I even exist is to (laughs) have me higher in the rankings of the podcast apps. And I can climb in those rankings of the podcast apps if you take the time to go to the podcast app that you listen to this podcast on and not just download the episode, but also subscribe on that app and leave me a written review with what you like or don't like about this show. I'll include all of those in the feedback podcast if you have left a review by June 2nd, 2018. 
that's the way to get what you feel about the show heard as well. And I really appreciate it when you do, because that does raise my noticeability among 14 billion podcasts that are out there. So please do that. I think that I have probably annoyed you enough. I, I know that my analysis is annoying enough. So why annoy you about ratings? Well, because I'm not going to annoy you to go to some other website other than the podcast app because I don't sell anything on this podcast. I don't monetize this podcast at all. It's the only way that I personally feel good about myself when I'm talking on a podcast because I certainly don't have a great quality of voice. I certainly don't have great delivery. I don't really have any truly insightful knowledge. Why am I doing this podcast? Oh, yeah, because I want to hear your ideas. That's why. And so to be more noticeable helps me hear more people's ideas. And I thank you in advance. On Thursdays, we do do the music before we do the story analysis. That's next. An analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones. Baratheon, black of hair. So we start off with that scene, and there's a couple of things in that one that we've already covered, really. The first one being the honor theme, as I like to call it, but it's better known as the old gods and the new, which was, I think, first recorded on a season two official soundtrack. Um, But obviously we talked about it when Ned and Kat were talking to each other. And now you hear it here as Ned is opening the book. It's before he gets to actually reading the book aloud. Once he starts reading the book, then we get a theme that's very similar to when Catelyn first brought the news of John Aaron's death to Ned. In fact, it's the same order of notes, but the notes are taken from the chaos is a ladder theme. They're just placed in a slightly different order. But first, once again, just in case you missed the old gods and the new gods theme, because it's very light and it's very high. It's something that's interesting about this particular episode is there's a lot of thematic material But it's almost kind of cloaked in a way to where it's harder to detect. Uh, But here is that, what I call the honor theme. So there that is, plain as day. And like I said, we've covered it before. It's got those sweeping big intervals, the distance between notes that shows what a struggle it is keep things true to the old gods and the new or to be honorable but the second part of this again it's the exact same notes of Littlefinger's theme but they're placed in a slightly different order so it's this as opposed to this So it's the little finger theme basically cloaked in uh, uh, the arranging of notes. Again, it's making it not as recognizable unless you were really paying attention to the very first episode when Catelyn walked up to Ned and and realized it then. But uh, this is only the second time that this has really been used, or at least prominently. And so it's kind of its own cloak and dagger version of the little finger theme. And... 
Speaking of Cloak and Dagger, when Joffrey is talking to Sansa, we hear a version of the King's Arrival theme, which we haven't covered on this podcast, but we will hear in a second. First, let's listen to the clip. Like the one your mother wears. You'll be queen someday. It's only fitting you should look the part. As opposed to the way that we heard it in the very first episode when Robert arrived with big fanfare and everything like that, here the melody is played with harps. Like I've said before, timbre can generate emotion too. And this is a tender moment between Joffrey and Sansa, one of the few tender moments that we have between Joffrey and Sansa, really. But uh, it's nice. It's, it's done with kind of like this harp or this lyre kind of sound. And it's not uh, over-the-top big at all. So it's done with the harps. And it, it basically has two parts. You have this one line that goes down, da-da-da-da. Well, here, I'll just play it. And then you have what consists of the actual melody, which uh, the first time we heard it again was done big over-the-top with stacked horns. Here it's just done with this lyre kind of sound, and it's very done. It's done with sweet strings accompanying with the chords, and it's made to sound happy and and lovey dovey and all that stuff because of the timbres that are used. Um, but the melody is this. Or at least that's part of the melody. I'm not going to go through and play the whole thing um, because... You, once you hear that part, you recognize where you are immediately. And just to show how different this one is, as opposed to the time we heard it before, and one of the times that we hear it at the beginning of season two as well, where this, everything's done with the brass and it's over the top and it feels just like, you know, the king is coming. You know, that's, that's the feeling that you're supposed to get uh, when Robert arrives at Winterfell. Here's that. There's some interesting harmonic things in this as well, and I'm not going to really break them down to the point where it gets confusing, but there are two chords when when everything's rising. Da ba 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 ba. Um, the da da that part. Um, the first chord would tend to make you think that the key is minor. The second chord would tend to make you think that the key is major. Which is uh, an interesting kind of confliction because we know that the minor chords make us feel uh, sad or scared. The major chords make us feel happy or joyous or relieved. And that's, that, it's interesting that he used uh, both flavors to kind of depict that you don't know what to expect when this king is arriving. And then, of course, he carried it on through. But in the first episode of season two... Once Joffrey had ordered the death of all of Robert's bastards, then everything becomes minor, as opposed to having even a hint of major in it. It becomes very sinister, in fact. And you can definitely hear the difference between the version that we just heard and this one, which goes to show how, once again, harmony can dictate how we feel about certain scenes. Here's that scene from season two, episode one. 
Again, you can find that on the Season 1 official soundtrack, if you wish. It is called The King's Arrival on that official soundtrack. And we're going to move on to a third theme. And this is one of my favorites because this one you barely even notice that it's there. But it's very important. And the scene that it placed is placed in makes it very important. And Ramin used this kind of thematic scene to use this theme most often. First, let me just play the scene for you. This is when Danny is grabbing the egg and putting it on the brazier. Did you hear it? Because I have that volume way up so that you can hear it because it's barely audible um, if you're playing it at the same volume as you do the rest of the episode. But it's in that what I call it sounds like uh, if, if you were to take a cello bow and run it across a bell, I call it bowed bells. Um, I think I got that from a synth sound that sounded similar, but it's a it's a it's a synthy sound. It's kind of high pitched. And it's playing this. Now, do you recognize hearing it in that scene? This is what I call the dragon connection theme. Daenerys has several themes, right? But this one is the one that relates to her connection to the dragons. Just so you're sure to hear it, let me play along with the scene. I'll play the notes along with the scene so that you hear what's going on uh, at the same time. Okay, so there, now we have it. Now, why do I call this a dragon connection theme? Well, here, she is actually making a connection with the egg. And it's almost, I love that he chose that timbre to play the melody with because it's almost like it's a a barely perceptible connection. You know, we're sitting there thinking, well, it's a stone egg. Why is she putting it on a brazier, right? But it's because somehow her and the dragon embryo that is within are in communication with each other. And that is huge because this theme shows up time and time again when Danny is making a connection with her dragons. Do you remember in season six, I believe it was, the Battle of the Bastards, where she's got all of the guys uh, from the other slaver cities, and she's asking for their surrender, and they're kind of like, what are you, crazy? We've, We've got you surrounded. We've got our boats and everything. And all of a sudden, she just says, no, that was the wrong answer. And then her dragon appears. I, I love that. And it's about the connection that she has with the dragon. And we'll get more into that even in the next scene that I play for you. But here in this season one scene, the dragon is calling to her. We can be alive, you know, and she's trying to warm the dragon egg up to keep the dragon egg warm. That's why she's putting it on the brazier. And now in this scene that I'm about to play for you here, she's just waiting for Drogon to make his dramatic entrance to really scare the bejesus out of these guys um, and and force them to surrender. 
And more than that, uh, I'm actually going to play the clip from where she is now riding on Drogon. And the other dragons are freeing themselves. It's like the, the, it's literally the dragon connection. It's the way she reaches out to the dragons to get them to come to her. And that happens, of course, when she brings Drogon in on these three guys. And it happens again when the two other dragons break out of where they were before because Tyrion had set them free. Just, I love that. That was one of my favorite music cues of season six. Yeah, that was one of my favorite cues. Another one of my favorite cues, and I don't talk about season five a whole lot because that's the year that I boycotted this the uh, the season because I didn't like what they did with Sansa. Uh, I came back, but I wanted to make a point, and nobody cared, so it didn't really matter. Anyway, uh, going to season five, the end of season five, season five, episode nine, I believe it is, The Dance of Dragons. This one is one of the most iconic dragon Daenerys connections. It's when she flies with Drogon for the very first time. She hops on his back and flies. And if you recall, and I don't have that in this clip because it would be too long that way, but uh, if you recall, when the bad guys had Daenerys and Jorah and all of them all surrounded, it looked thing looked pretty dire, and Daenerys kind of closed her eyes and everything. And then all of a sudden, you heard Drogon screaming. And then this theme came in as Drogon came in and saved the day. But to me, the most beautiful version of this theme is still when she jumps on his back, tells him "Vlad," which means to fly or fly, I guess. And then he just starts running, and he takes off with her on his back. Here's that. is just lovely and even the end credits after that was spectacular because he interweaved parts of the main theme with this uh, theme that we've been covering here so in essence I, I know i said three themes really there were four cloaked main themes as opposed to you know we had all incidental music in the monday episode basically the, the stark theme was the only theme in the wolf and the lion and in this one there's nothing but themes all over the place, themes that will last throughout the whole course of the series with specific meaning. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Musical Analysis. Let's get into talking about the episode next. All right, so here we go. Season 1, Episode 6, A Golden Crown. Once again, the teleplay by Jane Espenson and Benioff and Weiss. The story by Benioff and Weiss. And directed by Daniel Minahan. Just some kind of surfacey things. This podcast episode is coming in kind of at the heels of Mother's Day. And this, uh, this episode's very Mother's Day oriented in a lot of ways. Because uh, the whole story of Danny... And Viserys lays out just how much stronger the bond can be between a mother and her child and a sister and her brother, uh, without doubt. Now, don't get me wrong, Viserys has done some pretty terrible things to Daenerys, and who knows what kind of unspeakable things that he's done to her that we never saw, 
before we met them on this television show. Um, I wouldn't find it that unlikely by the way that she cowers anytime he says, you don't want to wake the dragon. Um, it seems like the dragon has been woken on Daenerys before. But here, you know, it wasn't even about threatening her. It was about threatening her child that made her just say, okay, Jogo can do whatever he wants to this guy. And Drogo, in the same way, you threaten me, that's fine. We can settle this men to men. But you threaten my child, the stallion who will mount the world. And I'm going to have people hold you while I pour a pot of gold over your head and watch you burn. And, and it's funny because Daenerys says, once again, he is not the dragon. Viserys doesn't have the resistance to heat that we see Daenerys have. And it's very clearly demonstrated in this episode. She picks up a burning hot egg that's been sitting on a brazier and there are no scar marks. He is poured over with hot gold and dies. As you would tend to think that any human being would, Daenerys is different. And the show has gone to great lengths to make this kind of a difference between the books and the show in the books um the Daenerys pyre thing at the end of book one at the end of season one where she actually just goes into the fire and is able to be in the fire and survive without being burned at all that that's like a miraculous event that happens kind of like once in a song of ice and fire and hasn't happened again yet with Danny and the television show, you have that event at the end of season one. At the end of season two, she's able to have all of her dragons just shoot fire all around her. She doesn't get any kind of burning or anything as they take out Pri. Obviously, in season six, she emerges from a burning temple in Vaistothrak with all of her clothes burned off of her, but she, just like... She was in the pyre at the end of this season. Um, all of her clothes have been burned off of her, but she is unburnt. And she is even called the unburnt. So the television show has taken her resistance to fire to much more of a physicality effect rather than the spectacular, miraculous event that was the birth of the dragons as George has done. I have no problem with that. I, I think it's cool that Danny is supernatural in a way, but obviously it's not necessarily a Targaryen trait. And I think I've talked about this before, but John, he got burnt when he threw that fire at the white, when he saves Mormont later on in this season. So he doesn't have the resistance to fire. Um, Viserys obviously doesn't have the res even the resistance to heat that Daenerys had. Maybe the gold would have a little more something to do with it, but it just seems like uh, the males, at very least in the Targaryen line, do not have the resistance to fire that Daenerys has, at least the, the males that we know. There's been lots and lots of Targaryens way before uh, these two or these three, and it's hard to say if any of them were resistant to fire the same way that Daenerys is. Is Daenerys just, be, do we think of it because she's a dragon rider, she has to have some kind of resistance to heat. Uh, wouldn't the dragon itself kind of be burning to her it, or to a normal person who would be riding the dragon because of the heat that the dragon has? Isn't it just basically breathing fire uh, uh, when it wants to? And there's other surfacey things. I mean, this whole relationship between Arya and Sirio, uh, which I'm going to get more into in my big things, but it, it's just, it's, Sirio is already, even though Ned is there still, Sirio is a father figure to Arya. And uh, Sirio, Sirio takes the role of the first father figure that isn't Ned. To Arya, unless she considered John as kind of a father figure as well, which I'm not so certain that she didn't. But um, it's a little different when it's your, when it's your brother. I think it's not the same as as a complete stranger who's a grown man who, you know, talks about death 
and killing people, you know, and this is the first of just a long line of killers that Arya aligns herself with. Uh, we'll talk to more about that again in a minute, but it just her scenes. So with him are just so endearing in the fact that, that he makes the most serious thing in the world, which is defending yourself and killing yourself. He makes it fun. He makes it into a game for her. And even in this serious talk about her being with her troubles, um, that was just very interesting. And Arya, uh, her reaction to Sansa talking about Joffrey, uh, th- those are the cute little moments that really endear you to these characters and make you care about what happens to them later. There's people out there that are like, oh, finally, deaths, deaths. Yes, last week we got a big action scene with, with Jamie and Ned, and now we have Viserys dying, and these are the important things. No. What happens to them is important, don't get me wrong, but you have to care about them for it to be important. For me, Viserys' death, even on the, f- the very first time I ever saw this series, Viserys' death was like, eh, well, he had that coming. Move on. It, it meant nothing to me. It meant nothing to me about the brutality of the way that he died. You know why? Because I didn't care about him. I did kind of say, well, you got your comeuppance for threatening her baby. And and I guess that's the response you're supposed to get. I don't feel any sympathy for him. I don't feel any great loss. I'm like, I'm not like, oh, what are they going to do now? Where's Who's going to be the bad guy? I'm not worried about it because I've got all these other great characters that have been developed so well that I care about. And don't get me wrong. Harry Lloyd did a great job with the role. He made Viserys amazingly creepy. I mean, super creepy. And in the moments that that he did get to shine, he really did shine as that creepy older brother to Daenerys. But now that he's gone, eh, no big deal. And more about that in a minute. But I care more about this mystery unraveling that that Ned's unraveling. You know, I mean, we can all hear it now. We've got the clues. And again, I'm playing the result. It's easy to look back on this stuff and see how well all of the clues were layered in. Things like Gendry saying that his mother had yellow hair, yet his hair is black. You know, these kind of things are all fantastic, but that's the kind of stuff that I love that is boiling to the surface, not who rode who down with a horse or who got gold poured on their head or anything. That's that's not what the story is about. If you're looking for events, go read a newspaper. If you want to care about the characters and you want to know why these things should be impactful, then watch the show or read the books. Event television is not television to me. They're just events. Um, I'm much more concerned about how a story builds over the course of time. And uh, hopefully this rewatch will help me put into better perspective how well Dave and Dan have done um, in not only adapting George's story to television, but also passing it and, and going beyond where George is. And if, he's, if they've been able to do the same with the stuff that is just in bullet points as opposed to stuff that is laboriously put out in text by George. Anyway, enough of all that. Let's get into my three big things. Three, three big things. And the first big thing, I am circling back around to Viserys again, because the bigger implication in all of the story now is that no one in Danny's generation is the quote-unquote legitimate heir to the Targaryen throne anymore. Uh, not by the way that Westerosi law goes anyway, seemingly, because if you have seen the Blu-ray extras of the, the, the Dance of Dragons and that big special that uh, they put together to go along with this, was it the season five or season six Blu-rays? I don't remember which, but um, that's a really nice thing. And, and a lot of that was about whether a woman had the right to be queen or whether it would pass to a male heir. And generally, the ruling is is that the male heir in this backwards world always gets precedence over the female heir. You can have Danny, who's 20-some-odd-year-old, and you could have had another of Rhaegar's sons who's, 
let's say five and the five-year-old would still get a chance to rule before Danny would because Rhaegar was the oldest son and the son of the oldest son is the first in line towards the throne. Now, Viserys being a living son, I believe would have been the legitimate heir. But once he dies, that means that John or Aegon, as we now know him to be, is a legitimate heir to the throne. Not Danny, but John. And that's nothing that, I mean, all of you all know that already. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, but was the purpose of Viserys even being in the story was just enough to get Danny over the hump of some insecurities that she has. And when she's able to overcome the Viserys insecurity, then she's on the road to becoming who she ultimately becomes. Which is not evidently the ruler of Westeros, if you go by what's happened with John and, and all of this. But perhaps the savior of the entire world, because her dragons seem to be the best chance to defeat the White Walkers. Even though she's lost one of her dragons to the White Walkers already, she's still got a two-to-one advantage in that department. Because I really can't see any other reason for Viserys to even be in the story except to further hide the fact that John is a legitimate heir to the throne. And by eliminating him early, that then distracts us to think that Daenerys is a legitimate Targaryen heir to the throne. Which, until we find out that this late on in the game, that John is the uh, legitimate heir to the throne. At the same time that he's betting his aunt. But no, all of that doesn't really matter. But the thing is, is I just wonder if Viserys was a distraction because we didn't really know him long enough to really get to know him, except for the fact that we knew that he wasn't a very good person. But before we totally condemn Viserys, Viserys ain't the only bad guy in the room when all of this goes down with the golden crown. Drogo is not a good guy. If any of you people are out there saying, oh, I love Drogo, he's a good guy. Does he change a little bit? Yes. Daenerys, because she is the mother of his stallion who will mount the world, um, is able to sway some of his decisions to be a little more humane than probably he was before he met Daenerys. But let's not forget that this is a guy who raped Daenerys on their wedding night. And who had very little consideration for slaves or anything until Daenerys learned how to tame him in the bedroom. To which point he started listening to her a little bit. And that comes into play later on. And let's look at this too, uh, because this is maybe one of the, on the plus side for Drogo. Because Drogo did what he did to Viserys. He truly did defend Daenerys and his baby. And that may be something that helped Daenerys to love Drogo more. I don't understand the complete flip before this moment. But during this moment, or after this moment, I could understand why Danny might have more feelings for Drogo. Up until that point, um, other than just a little bit of power unless she's just really enjoying having that power in the bedroom i don't understand why she's suddenly all about drogo the inklings of power i'm sure are getting to her a little bit she now if she can control drogo she can control a whole dothraki horde and that's pretty major that's a big taste of power and then here's a guy who defends her when her brother threatens her son's life. But he also made her eat a raw horse heart. He also made her ride until she was so sore she couldn't even walk in terms of riding with the horses on their way to Vaistothrak. So 
I'm not exactly sure where people get off saying that Khal Drogo was a good guy. He wasn't. He was savage. And he did change a little bit, which is more than what Viserys ever got a chance to do. But he really, in the end, in many ways, other than what Daenerys did change, or at least convince him to try, in some ways he was worse than Viserys in terms of crimes against humanity, at least up to that point. And all of this makes you feel not conflicted. I mean, Viserys needed to go. I'm glad he's gone. Drogo kind of needed to go too because Viserys wasn't going to be king and Daenerys was never going to be queen when she was Drogo's Khaleesi. And we'll talk more about uh, Drogo as we go on in future episodes, I'm sure. But now my second big thing. And I guess that second thing would be Tyrion. I know I haven't talked a lot about Tyrion. Uh, mentioned him a couple times in the past five episodes, but not a whole lot. Not probably to the liking of many people that are Tyrion fans. What I'm going to say about Tyrion here, I'll just basically say he's had it kind of rough. You know, he's gotten trouble from both his sister and Jamie for asking about Bran. And he's built up some resentment already from Joffrey, which we know how that's going to pay off later. Um, the Night's Watch doesn't seem to care for him much, except for the people who need him. And that would typically be uh, those in command, like Mormont. Like, eventually, John will be in command, and, and Tyrion has certainly earned John's respect. But now he's on his way back down south, and he's gotten nothing but trouble from the rest of the Starks. Rob didn't particularly care for him for asking questions. And even after Tyrion gave Bran that saddle, still doesn't seem to be enough to quell the tensions. And then Catelyn, of course, turns around and captures Tyrion because of what Littlefinger has framed him for. At least we now know that he's been framed for this. Um, he does use his smarts, and he does get a little bit of luck happen for him in the situation that he's in right now. He does manage to convince Mord to bring him up top. And don't forget that he does, in fact, give Mord his gold after Bronn gets him out of this situation. So Tyrion seems to be much more of a man of honor than any... Tully has given him credit for, or really any Stark has given him credit for, and f <laughs> really any Lannister has given him credit for. So, you know, he, he is rising above all of these surmounting odds, and I really enjoyed seeing Tyrion win. I know that I've always been, if you've listened to any past podcasts that I've been on in Podcast Winterfell or in anybody else's podcasts, I've always been kind of a Catelyn person. But uh, in this case, where it's Catelyn versus Tyrion, I think that Tyrion has made it quite obvious where he said that, you know, what kind of imbecile huh, would arm an assassin with his own blade? Well, the only kind of imbecile like that would be Littlefinger, not Tyrion. He's tried to use logic to convince these people. So finally, he just uses the fighting skills of Bronn. And I'm sure that he didn't have any trouble for the fact that Bronn was coming along with him because, uh, or going to fight for him, because in the coming along with Tyrion, then Bronn has proven himself against those hill tribes. And I guess Tyrion thought that he saw a decent enough fighter to fight against these Knights of the Vale, who, you know, this guy who fights for Lysa is a Knight of the Vale. And they ultimately come to the rescue of Jon as well, thanks to Sansa bringing Littlefinger in. So uh, give kudos to Tyrion for getting out of that and the reason that it becomes kind of a big thing as well is because this won't be the last time for a trial by combat in hopes that he can actually get out 
of a regular kind of trial. Um, first, he tries to do the regular kind of trial, and then when Shay comes in and destroys his heart, and so uh, he calls for the trial by combat, and fortunately, even though he loses that trial, everything was stacked up against him in that second trial that happens after, you know, he uh, is accused of killing Joffrey. He manages to still get out of it because his brother comes to his rescue. And he, of course, uses that opportunity to kill uh, one of their own family members. So it's clear that there are tensions between Jamie and Tyrion at that point, even though towards the end of season seven, Jamie is coming to the north to help against the White Walkers. But obviously, much more on all of that much later on uh, throughout the course of this podcast. So let's get on to my third big thing. And I'm having a really hard time deciding between two things to be my third big thing uh, because part of me really wants to talk about Arya and Sirio and the idea that, you know, it, it's all this Bravos tie and Arya's revenge and everything. But when I look at Arya, it, it, so far, as far as the story has gone, her revenge has been mostly personal. It doesn't have global implications. Now, granted, the killing of Littlefinger will have, you know, realm-wide ramifications, but that wasn't just Arya on her own. That was Arya and Sansa and Bran all together basically deciding that Littlefinger needed to go for the whole dagger thing. So the other aspect in this episode that does have realm-shaking consequences is the black of hair that Ned comes to. First of all, I guess, just like in our own world, it seems that dark hair is a more dominant genetic trait than light hair. And that greatly helps explain how John can be a Targaryen. We're always like, oh, the Targaryens, they all have golden hair. Well, uh, not many of them are known to do anything with anybody except each other. So naturally, you would keep the, the light hair if you were all um, pretty much doing your sisters or brothers um, the same way Jamie and Cersei are, which is the issue here that Ned is coming to. But we have John, uh, whose mother is Lyanna, who had dark hair, who looks mostly like Arya, according to what everybody says. And Arya has dark hair, and so that trait takes over, and so John's hair is naturally dark, uh, like his mother's, as opposed to light like his father's. Yes, okay, genetics 101. Uh, <laughs> sorry, didn't mean to dabble on that too long. But the thing that I find myself getting into with all of this is this whole seed is strong. Not all, it, it's been proven that not all Baratheons are black of hair. Regardless of what has been recorded in the books, it seems to me that, that Stannis's hair is quite brown. Now, Renly's hair, I suppose, is uh, not quite as black as Robert's, but the closest to being as black as Robert's. Stannis's hair just seems kind of brown. And if you look at his daughter, I mean, her hair is actually a light brown, kind of like her mother's. And I guess you can say that there are exceptions to every rule, of course especially when it comes to genetics, just the right different combination or the random randomness of it or whatever. But I guess I just never felt like the evidence was conclusive enough to have somebody writing down that somebody was born black of hair as being evidence enough of, of the genetics as to whether, you know, Joffrey or Marcella or Tommen would have been Robert's children or not. There can be some randomness there, just like there was with with Stannis, except for the fact that all of the other Baratheon bastards, all of Robert's other children out of wedlock, seem to have black hair as well. And that's what the big difference is. 
it seems that Robert's seed is strong, uh, regardless of whether the Baratheon seed is strong. Um, but I always wondered why Ned would take such issue with Cersei and Jaime doing what they did when he himself was keeping a secret from Robert about what Lyanna did. And maybe that's why he went to Cersei and was going to give her a chance to get away before Robert came back was uh, because he wanted her children to have the same chance um, that his nephew, John, had. But it's questionable, I suppose, as to why Ned feels it's okay to hide John from Robert, but not okay for Cersei to hide Joffrey and them for Robert. Unless it's just a sense that, you know, incest is wrong. But then, you know, he would have to think that about most of the Targaryen line. Granted, not Rhaegar. Rhaegar, in fact, was married to Aaliyah who was Oberyn Martell's sister before he was married to Lyanna. And she too would have been dark of hair, being from Dorne. So I have no idea what their children look like. If their children turned out to have blonde hair, then we'd have, ooh, we'd have some issues here. Um, but I, I don't recall what their children were described as looking like. And so, therefore, I won't go into that conversation uh, until I've had time to read up and examine things, which I don't have time to do right now. Um, Here's a question. Questions. Questions. Now I finally get to talk about Arya and Serio. And, you know, lots of people, now that we've had this whole Bravos connection with Arya already through Serio... It's time to go back and ask the same old question once again, which we always ask ourselves every time we see Arya develop this relationship with Sirio, and that is, is Sirio a faceless man? He talks about a lot of the same things that the faceless men talk about, the god of death, except that Sirio says not today, whereas most of the time a faceless man um, just obeys the God of death, helps people to find the death, did not say not today, but rather to say, okay, let's, let's take a drink from the pool. So are there any of you out there that still believe that Cyril is a faceless man? Or let me take it even a step further, uh, that Cyril is the same father figure that Arya has had throughout the course of everything regarding revenge that her dancing master was also her faceless man in season two, who was also her faceless man in seasons. What was that? Five and six. So uh, are they all one and the same? Uh, Some people have believed that. Um, I personally don't think that that's the case, but I would love to think that Sirio did survive his encounter with some of the King's guard and was just thrown in jail and at some point got away. But I, I, there's obviously no reason to believe that whatsoever. You would think he would have shown up by now if he was going to show up at all. It would just be a fun fan fiction kind of moment. Not really anything based on any evidence at all, except for the fact that they didn't show him die. And usually in this show, uh, they like showing people die. That's all. Uh, so, uh, And that's a big argument uh, that people have for the fact that Serio might still be alive. But what do you think about Serio? What's your crazy Serio theory? Or, or do you think that he's just a guy who was in the right place at the wrong time uh, for Arya? Either way, and I know that Serio is very likable, And, you know, he seems to be a good teacher for what he's teaching Arya. But what he's teaching Arya is how to become a killer. You know, and while Arya doesn't see it like that right now, and neither does Ned. I mean, nobody thinks what's going to happen. It's Arya's own personality that makes this training start to take a dark turn. But Sirio is definitely the first. If you don't believe that he's the same father figure, he's the first of many father figures that Arya glams onto who are pretty hateful people. Well, Sirio's not really hateful, 
pretty dangerous people. Let's put it that way. Pretty dangerous people. And on that, uh, just a couple more little tidbits here. Tidbits. Yeah. Speaking of dangerous, I mean, come on. (laughs) Gregor Clegane, the mountain, is dangerous. And he's going around ripping people apart uh, and leaving fish behind. So it looks like Catelyn is the one that's doing all of these things. Or the Tullys are the ones. They're trying to discredit Catelyn's family's house in order to um, instigate further war, I guess, or to instigate uh, Catelyn releasing Tyrion in some way. If the Lannisters hadn't had so little faith in Tyrion that he would get out of this on his own, um, so much of this would have been avoidable. But at the same time, I mean, Catelyn did start it and Ned further propagated it doing the right thing. Don't get me wrong with the whole, you know, justice for Gregor Clegane, for the people who were wronged by Clegane's men. Um, incidentally, uh, who, who, who was that? That wasn't the Beric Dondarrion that I saw on the wall last season. That was a different Beric Dondarrion. They hadn't really uh, considered who would be him, but I guess they had to have somebody stand in uh, to become Beric Dondarrion. But I just can't even believe that they're one and the same people at all. Um, so there's one little slip of miscasting. I don't know. You can't cast a guy for to step forward and then expect him to stick around for two seasons doing nothing before he shows up again. So let's strike that. I mean, it's just that, uh, I mean, I understand the, the whole dilemma of producing a television show. Uh, it's just disappointing to me every time to, to not see our version of Beric Dondarrion, the one that we know so well, um, stand up when Ned calls on him. If they could just go back and re-edit a shot of him coming up there uh, and when they do, you know, a final release of everything, because you know they will. They'll do like, you know, get all eight seasons in one plus all this special supplementary things, you know, and just do what George Lucas did and just, you know, what didn't work the first time around for you, just Recut it. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so that that's one thing that uh, got me was, uh, you know, Ned uh, further pushed things. And, you know, just like he told Jamie, he's going to take responsibility for everything that Catelyn has done. So, you know, he's, he's standing on his ground uh, shakily with one cane. <laughs> uh, and now he's found out the big deal with the black of hair. And so the whole thing takes a different turn. Um, But the war between the Lannisters and the Starks has really already begun. Kind of began really with Catelyn, again, taking Tyrion. It's just, it's a shame that the Lannisters don't trust Tyrion to take care of himself because he managed to do so just fine. Okay, I think that's all I got for this episode. Let's uh, get to a couple more little segments that we always do. First is three words. Three words. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. Three little words. Thank you, Mr. Pizzarelli for the tunage and remember folks all of the musical artists that i use on the podcast are in the show notes please support them they're kind enough to not sue me for using their music um of course there's not enough downloads for them to feel threatened by it either but at the same time uh they're not coming after me i am a member of bmi so that helps too but at any rate uh, nobody's coming after me so thank them but it just click on their website give them give them a website hit that's all I'm asking. The links are in the show notes. Uh, here we go. The three-word description of the episode. And man, I, I got to tell you, I'm kind of at a loss as to what to do with this one. Um, bye-bye, Viserys. I think that's the, the big one. Or um, not last error. Maybe those would be my three words for this particular episode because to me that is the big thing it's like even though Viserys is gone there's still a male Targaryen heir out there 
what would your three-word description of this episode be? You can send me an email, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S, audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at Matt's G-O-T blog. That's M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter and submit your three words. Just let me know what episode you're submitting them for. We're going to have a big three-word section in our feedback podcast. Remember, you have until June 2nd, 2018, no matter where you are in the world. Midnight at on June 2nd, 2018. If you live in Honolulu, then midnight on June 2nd in Honolulu is your deadline. On the other hand, you got a lot fewer hours if, say, you live in London. Because it's midnight, your time, in London on June 2nd to submit by in order to be included in the feedback podcast, which will follow our coverage of the last episode of the season, season one, episode 10. Next up will be the best coupling of the episode. We call that the brothel mates of the episode. That's next. Mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. Brothel mates of the episode. The best coupling of the episode doesn't necessarily have to be two people. Mine this week are not two people. Um, mine rarely are two people, actually. Um, but it, it can be two people, if you wish, or it can be uh, a person and an idea or an emotion or a person and an object or two ideas. You know, whatever you think fits together best in this episode. And for me, it's Ned and Calamity. The guy can't even walk, and he's already making trouble again by picking on poor old Mountain Clegane. Well, he should be. But yeah, you know, let's stir the pot a little more. Make things even harder to back down for the Lannisters and the Starks, or the Lannisters and the Tullys. It's just one big mess waiting to happen. And now Ned's found out the truth. What he thinks is the truth about Cersei and Jamie, and you know he's going to act on that in the next episode, and we'll talk about that then. What who what is your best coupling for this episode? Remember, you can submit this stuff or any other thoughts for any episode of season one of Game of Thrones as long as you get it to me by June second, two thousand eighteen, midnight wherever you are in the world. That's your deadline. Midnight, June second, two thousand eighteen. Uh, for any of the episodes or all of the episodes, I'd love to hear from you uh, via Twitter at Matt's GOT blog or via email Matt's audio blog at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you need to find more links um, for any of that, you can always just go to Matt's audio blog.com. That's M A T T S audio blog.com. Be back to wrap things up here in just a minute. Thanks once again for joining me this week. Next week, two more episodes. We'll do You Win or You Die on Monday and then The Pointy End on Thursday. And that will be the week of Con of Thrones. And I just now, I mean like literally 20 minutes ago, booked my tickets. I'm only going to be there on the Sunday. I'm going to see, uh, for certain, I'm going to see uh, Joffrey of Podcasts panel. Who is, those are my friends, uh, 
Bubba and Catfish, if you're familiar with that podcast. I'm going to be at Con of Thrones in Dallas on the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, which will follow next week's episodes. And then we'll only have two episodes left and your feedback deadline. Once again, June 2nd. Remember, M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com or M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter if you want to follow me there or talk to me there. And you can find all of the back episodes to the podcast at mattsaudioblog.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.